Hello Donkey Sanctuary operators everywhere and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On this week's edition, be a hero or else. The Covid truce is over and Her Majesty's Press are back to doing what they do best, complaining about militant teaching unions and winding up spoiled young Remainers who have the cheek to want to go on holiday abroad. How did coronavirus get conscripted into our endless, endless culture war? Plus, on the bright side, is the lockdown really going to be an opportunity for a great reset in how we do, well, everything? Future Nord Mark Stevenson joins us to talk about the big changes we could make for a post-corona world. And with some parts of Europe opening up their beaches and the tourist industry, will we all feel too worried or too guilty to go on holiday at all? All this and more in today's Bunker. Hello, before we start, a quick shout to everybody who's backed us on the Patreon crowdfunding platform. It's been fantastic to get your support. We very much appreciate it, especially the way things are right now. If you'd like to show your support for the show, then search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Starting at £2 a month, you'll get the full podcast without adverts, plus merchandise like bunker mugs and t-shirts, because who doesn't want an Ian Dunt mug? And we're announcing our next live stream soon too, so you'll get first dibs on that. Right, let's meet the panel. Returning to the bunker, we have Best of Britain CEO, Naomi Smith. Hello, Naomi. How are you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm good. I'm kind of still basking in the glow of uh, sensible stuff that Hilary Benn talked to me about on the, the Bunker Daily. Um, yeah, it was a really interesting interview. And um, he it was just so nice to speak to a politician that is sort of following a very sensible, pragmatic approach rather than reverting to tired tribalism. Yes, it was very, very a very calming lesson I found. Um, we've had on the on the non-calming side, we've had the dispiriting sight of the immigration bill in Parliament Ugh. this week. Best of Britain were pushing MPs to vote against it. Has this bill been modified in any way at all to take account of coronavirus? Or are we just getting what we're getting? Yeah, we're just getting what we're getting. Um, and once again, this is really going against uh, public opinion. Um, this week, King's College London. Um, Uh, published some research that showed two-thirds of the British public, 64%, agree that the coronavirus has made them value the role of so-called low-skilled workers in essential services such as care homes, transport, shops, etc., more than they ever did before. So, uh, yeah, once again, government being pretty out of step with where public thinking has now evolved. It's always nice to be uh, told who's a low-skilled worker from a, by a low-skilled politician. Uh, one, of the, one of the nastiest <laughs> and pettiest aspects of it has been uh, demanding that actors and musicians and performers need to get a visa and prove they had at least £945 in the bank. I don't know anybody in that category who's ever had £945 in the bank. <laughs> How many art, young artists can do that? Or is this just about you know branding the arts as kind of lefty, foreigner, Romani, liberally stuff? Well, it's just, it, no, it's insane because obviously leavers and, you know, right-wingers like music too. I mean, look, Ringo Starr, he was a, a leave-backer. Uh, Michael Caine, actor, leave-backer. Um, no one wants to live in a world without the arts. And like, where where would we even be? Where would British music even be without foreign influence? Beethoven, Mozart, Chicago House, uh, American Blues. You're getting um, all, all the key, key elements there. I'm very glad right. you got Chicago House in there. Yeah. Like all our music is inspired by foreign influences. And like before anyone goes all whataboutery with Morris dancing, I looked it up and its etymology is rooted in the word Moorish from oh, the Maghreb. Wow. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's just like the actions of those who either just don't understand or don't care at all about British culture. I mean, are we going to have to like rebrand Shakespeare plays like the, the Merchant of Penistone instead of the Merchant of Venice? <laughs> like, it's just mad. It's all mad. The world's gone mad. You may have heard him coming in in the background. It's uh, our European News Headquarters Bureau in Mykonos, Greece, Alexandreo. Hello, Alex. How you doing? Hello. Well, um, just about survived. Um, I, I managed to uh, pass a small kidney stone last week and, and basically infect every single one of my organs and get septicemia. Um, but Ouch. Uh, I am now... Uh, well on my way to feeling much, much better. Good. Well, nothing could have made you feel much better than uh, the Mail on Sunday at the weekend. With, uh, <laughs> do you think, will Keir Starmer ever recover from being exposed as a man who funds donkey sanctuaries for his disabled mother? Is his career over now? It's such a weird story, isn't it? I mean, one gets the sense that someone brought it to them and they got so excited about how bad they could make it look that nobody, not the journalist, not the editor, nobody did any actual homework. Yeah, but it's like, I, I think they just demonstrated him to be exactly the kind of person that a Mail on Sunday reader would quite admire. I mean, most Mail on Sunday readers would give their last penny to a donkey sanctuary, surely. It's like sentimental Britain um, animal lover. 
that that's an that's an accurate but rather unkind way of describing the Brexit Party, Andrew. <laughs> the donkey sanctuary. The thing is, we all laughed at this scoop, but do you, th- do you think there are people out there who might take it as you know? Yes, what's a, what's a hypocritical bastard? No, come on. Who who's their intended audience here? The left of Labour, who may have had a suspicion that you know, despite a working class background and a long history of fighting for the right causes, Starmer is secretly a tough. They don't put much stock in what the Mail on Sunday yes. says. Who's the intended audience? The the readers of the Mail on Sunday will be delighted that he he owns land and keeps a donkey sanctuary. I don't get it at all. I think the next general election campaign, he should just ride around the country on a donkey. <laughs> that would just be the, the smash hit. Keir, Keir Starmer, donkey farmer, as uh, as appeared on Twitter. Jonathan Coase suggested this in this <laughs> comic. Our special guest today is an entrepreneur, author, broadcaster, and reluctant futurologist, as well as a semi-professional musician and former comedian. He currently appears with fellow comic John Richardson on the podcast John and the Future Noughts. But right now he's here on the bunker. It's Mark Stevenson. Hello, Mark. How you Hello. doing? I'm very. Well, that's a good question these days, isn't it? You know, in, 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 people always say, "How are you doing?" And especially in the UK, you're expected, "Oh, I'm fine, thanks," and just move on. It, you know, I mean, your whole family just could have been wiped out in a car crash, and you're meant to go, "Yeah, no, I'm fine. It's great. No, nothing, nothing to worry about." <laughs> and I think particularly what's happening now is that you ask that question, "How are you feeling?" and people are starting to answer truthfully, which actually I'm quite liking. Yes. This the, I, the end of I, I, still answered, I still haven't answered it though because I <laughs> my, my British reserve. Obviously, you, you, yeah, got, both, you got both bar- barrels of my kidney stone when you asked me. Yeah, I know, and I'm, I'm, I'm still digesting it, as it were. Um, <laughs> Mark, it's been yes. time as a futurologist. Sadiq Khan's going to make London largely car-free. The coal industry is collapsing. Solar panels yes. becoming insanely cheap. Have you been enjoying the emergency on planet Earth? No, I'm not enjoying it because, um, I mean, it, the problem is that, you know, what I'm saying to a lot of friends at the moment is people like one of my clients is um, what's great is the whole world has just been given a lesson in systems change, which makes my job a lot easier because I'm known for not really giving uh, two hoots about you know, political or corporate sensibilities. I usually turn up in places and have to and drive a truck through most people's assumptions. Um, but uh, now I'm arriving and somebody's already taken three tanks through there. So, um, but the problem is that, that, you know, the the fact that that's had to happen before people wake up to the injustice of the social contract, um, the ability that, you know, governments can change things they want to quickly, you know, that, you know, why do we have to get to this stage? Why do we even have to have a pandemic? Why do we have to have so many deaths when actually people have been talking about this in circles I move about for years saying we're well overdue? And in fact, I was working with John Richardson on his last TV show, and I inserted in there a whole episode, a whole um, section about pandemics now that we're overdue. It's not like we didn't know this stuff was coming. So, so yes, I'm enjoying it in one way that I feel vindicated, but feeling vindicated about something you knew was going to be a shit show anyway is not exactly great fun. Before we talk about the future, let's talk about the horrible present. The only upside of Brexit, we thought, was that at least the country wouldn't be quite as poisonously divided as before. And whatever else we thought about coronavirus, at least it was apolitical. How wrong we, and by we, I mean I, was. A recent YouGov poll showed Britain split 44% to 43% on the recent changes to the lockdown rules with a clear Remain leave correspondence. Ministers in newspapers are trying to frog march teachers into being heroes by returning to work on the 1st of June. And we had the entertaining spectacle of young News UK PR chief and keen traveller Olivia Utley telling us in the sun that it'll do our spoiled young Remainers good to remain in Britain for the holes. Just when we least need them are the culture wars back in business. Naomi, the government's trying to reopen the schools on the 1st of June despite the unions being opposed is it right that the government presses ahead with this rather than listening to what the education sector is saying he said in a leading question (laughs) um i i think this is incredibly corrosive and sinister uh teachers we know are really motivated by care and concern for their pupils and for education outcomes in the country Um, And we should take what they say very seriously. And attacking them, let's be clear, is an attack on the whole of civil society. Um, And and we know we're much richer for having professional teachers and treating them as work shy is just so unbelievably uh, pernicious. And, uh, you know, this whole debate over whether or not it's safe, (laughs) really, we don't know. Um, But in France, uh, which has, of course, partially reopened some schools with some kind of social distancing measures in place and smaller class sizes and stuff, have now seen a flare up of new coronavirus cases. 
And of course, our government has said that anyone aged over the age of five with symptoms of COVID can now get tested, which is proof that the government doesn't consider school-aged children as sort of more immune. And of course, there's been this worrying uh, news about the emergence of more cases of um, Kawasaki disease, which is like an inflammation yeah. uh, skin disease linked to the COVID virus. And parents are net negative about schools reopening, um, according to YouGov, according to Ipsos Mori, according to opinion polls. You know, it, it's clear that there is um, a majority against reopening amongst parents. They're fearful, and rightly so, because there just isn't enough evidence about whether or not it's safe. Although I would um, point listeners to a piece by Tom Chivers that he's done over at unheard.com. It's worth your time, and he analyzes all the pros and cons. It is a bit rich to say, let our teachers be heroes when the teachers are not actually wanting to be heroes right now. It's sort of like, the, the, again, the militarization of everything, the idea that you're being kind of frog, you, you know, if you're being frog marched into heroism, are you actually being a hero or are you yeah. being bullied into it? Exactly. It's straight out of the right wing playbook. Uh, they're going after the state sector, of course, when private schools like Eton are mostly not going back until September anyway. But I do sort of half wonder if it's part of the government trying to move the narrative on from the blame that they're getting over mishandling of coronavirus and trying to pass it on to blaming teachers. Um, but face it, you know, if the teaching profession was as incompetent at their jobs as the government has been on corona, I agree they should have all been sacked a long time ago. I mean, the problem is is, is everything is politicised. I mean, at the end of the day, every... Uh, the, the only exit strategy for COVID is herd immunity at some level. The question is how fast, when, um, and and the problem because everything is is being politicised is that you know if you voted Tory, then you, as Naomi points out, you know you just think that it's uh, liberals being feckless, lazy wimps who don't want you know to to get back to work and and do do what they need to for the country. Um, and if you voted, you didn't vote for the Tories, then then your immediate reaction is, is to regard them as heartless bully boy cowards who are more interested in money than saving lives. And the question is, you know, what is the cost? When? How many people are going to get it? When and how? So if you look at the various arguments, there are some quite good arguments for opening schools now there are also some good arguments for not opening them and the problem here i think is absolutely no transparency to use a teacher's phrase the government are not showing their workings and therefore um and why because the workings are ugly there are no right answers to this but spinning that ugliness comes out even uglier and it can contributes to this continuing politicization where rather than talking about something difficult as we should as sensible adults we just split ourselves into sides and and set one person against another just as we should be coming together and the press in particular are very good at doing that why because it's cheap journalism rather than expensive journalism which means actually understanding the bloody question you should be asking i have to say if you look at the questions the press are asking the government at the moment they're pretty shabby I'd agree with much of that, but I don't agree that teachers are trying to politicise it. Uh, you know, unions potentially more so, but but the teachers themselves, those that are speaking out, they, they are definitely not coming from at this from anything other than a care and concern aspect, as far as I can tell. Oh, no, I wasn't I mean, talking about the teachers. I was, I was talking about the various you know, elements of our... Yeah, our I, mean, I mean, also, uh, you know, as a unionised person that has been in a union my entire working life, whatever job I was doing... I mean, if the union doesn't get involved on whether it's safe for me to go back to work when there's a deadly virus around, then when does the union get involved? It does. It's a strange kind of fumbling of, of what seems to be a, a, a bit of free political capital for the government is, is, is puzzling, though, because the thing they've been able to rely on throughout this crisis is the notion that we're all in it together. And the idea that we're all supporting the health workers, we're all supporting the teachers, we're all supporting the shop workers and the delivery workers. This should have been an opportunity to emphasise that and to bring education, unions, teachers and, and so forth into the conversation rather than turn it back into you know relying on the muscle memory of militant unions and left-wing teachers and just letting you know letting the right-wing press do what it does it, it just seems to be a huge kind of fumbled opportunity to to you know for, for this government to further colonize the idea that it is britain yeah i mean John Alexander of the New Citizen Project wrote a brilliant blog post on what's happening at the moment. He says there's three stories um, that are being that could potentially be spun about COVID, which, and he calls them the subject story, the, the consumer story, and the citizen story. So the subject story is where we started off. Is we're all subjects of this of the government at the moment because there's a big thing going on. We all need to do what we need to do, okay? And that's kind of like you know 
parents tell you what to do, and by and large, you agree because there's a crisis going on. So uh, then, then what's happened is he said they spun it to the consumer story, which is you now have a choice of how you behave. And if you get ill or things go wrong, it's not our fault. It's not the government's fault. It's because those people over there are to blame. And what he's saying is if you want to get, battle against that, you have to do exactly what you've just um, uh, said, Andrew, which is get back to the citizen story, which is actually we all want together. Let's put aside this kind of stuff and say we need to be thinking together collectively across these boundaries rather than allowing various people to to put the blame on us when it will suit them later down the line politically. Well, speaking of blame, Alex, from your Mykonos Bureau desk, uh, you mm-hmm. must have been, enjoyed the Olivia Utley piece in the sun. Uh, lazy, spoiled Remainers. Well, it'll do them good to not uh, travel to Europe. Um, it's very, it was a strange thing because it's in the sun. His readership is older and declining. But listen, Nick Todd has put together a great thread pointing out that she was actually attacking people just like herself who do exactly the things that she does. Mm. And she's doing it because, it's, you know, sun readers themselves are going to suffer and they want to see somebody they dislike suffering too. What did, what did she make of it? I mean, it really was, the, it was, it was the fun punch bag of the weekend, wasn't it? Yeah, it's it's sort of Brexit extended, isn't it? It's like the press has been in Brexit mode for so long, um, they struggle to get out of the narrative. That's how it seemed like to me. And Brexit is relevant here, timing-wise, I mean. Uh, and I don't mean the extension. I mean, you know, at the moment of their greatest triumph, for quite literally the end of January, you know, at the moment they were patting themselves on the back and telling themselves, we took back control, the tiniest pathogen comes along and replies, you ain't taking back shit. (laughs) Okay? So uh, psychologically, that must feel like a gut punch. Literally, Mm. at at the precise point you think you have triumphed something that is 125 nanometers in diameter comes along and basically locks you in your home. The essence of lack of control. As an actor, Alex, you must recognize the uh, irony in that, the, uh, the grand structural kind of power of that in the story. And as we all know, gems come from Germany anyway, so it's it's it's, it's predictable. <laughs> um, is, has uh, has coronavirus been absorbed into the into the full nationalist narrative now? That if effectively, it's all about outside enemies, whether they're little tiny germs or or Michel Barnier, um, and that it's kind of all wrapped into this a similar kind of emotional package. Absolutely, I mean, you know, from the moment that, that, that Trump started calling it the China virus or the Wuhan virus, it was. You know, you're interested to see that the more politicized it becomes in nations, the more blame is thrown about. And the less politicized nations are doing a lot less of that. And I, and, I, and those nations will probably come out of this um, much better. I think, I think it was Bill Gates who said rather uh, brilliantly that you know, every nation's been given an exam called COVID and uh, the grades are coming in. And for the uh, nations which are you know, increasingly politicized and, and, and divided, their grades are... Uh, pretty much uh, correlated to being very, very bad, whereas nations which are much more collegiate in the way they've gone about it uh, are coming out with much better results. I think we're going to have to do resets in Britain if it continues. (laughs) You get another virus. You did that one, Ben. Here's a special French one for you. (laughs) Did you you guys see that leave.eu tweet that had uh, basically a, a picture of, you know, people running onto the beach of the on the D-Day landing and then a hipster hiding behind a sofa. And, and the, the strap line was heroes in 1940, whatever, and then liberals in 2020. Um, and I just, I just thought it, it, it's such an extraordinary misreading of what's going on or of what went on in the Second World War for that matter. You know, the idea that if you could have defeated the Nazis just by staying home for two fucking months and washing your hands, that we would still have sent thousands of people to their death because that's a heroic thing to do. It's, it's just so irrational. But you're overthinking it. I mean, this is just, that, that is about throwing beaches, the war, young people, holidays, 
being locked up at home into a big old blender, hitting, hitting, uh, you know, liquidize and pouring it out on Facebook because it, you know, the, the, the intended audience will simply, you know, draw from it the stimulus that, uh, that was expected that, you know, that now is bad and then was great. I mean, all of us, all of us are susceptible to this. I mean, the problem is we're all guided by emotion first and, re- and reason second. I like to say the brain does the PR for what the heart has already decided. And if you want to find the, the, the nearest person who's absolutely crazy and, and full of prejudice, then look in the bloody mirror. We're all like it. And this is what politicians and um, newspapers know. If they can stir up the emotion, they can make you think anything. And I know this because, you know, as a comedian or as a songwriter, I would absolutely try and use the emotions to try and get my point across. So, you know... It, the question is, how do you find an emotion uh, that's more positive in bringing us together? And that's one of the things the, the, the left lacks generally. They don't generally go on the emotion of like, everybody's awful, we hate everybody, let's have a miserable time, and you can feel absolutely dreadful about everybody else and yourself, and that's how we'll win. Uh, and that's never a compelling emotional narrative. So, you know, that, that's the problem we have. You know, we, we go with our emotions first, whether we like it or not. It's significant that, that COVID is falling harder on densely populated diverse urban areas i.e remaining type areas and the suburbs are older but they're less densely packed uh, the people who are politicizing coronavirus on you know they're, they're experiencing it in the sense that they're older but they're not experiencing it in the sense that it's it's uh you know heavily impacting their community yeah. um how is that kind of how is that shaping the political response the fact that you've got older angrier people who are in some respects suffering but actually it's the remaining lefty liberal areas that are getting the cases in numbers well i mean the resolution foundation had a good report out this morning proving that the economic impact of covid is hurting the youngest hardest um so instead of any kind of v-shaped recovery for their living standards 18 to 24 year olds will at best suffer a u-shaped effect so they'll be on the down for a lot longer flat flat lining along the bottom Um, and that age category has faced the biggest loss of income uh, among the population this year and and intergenerational inequality issues have been with us for decades now but it's really becoming acute Um, you know and this younger generation is having to live with not only uh, you know the sins of the past in terms of uh, fossil fuels and the impact uh, of um, that on the environment, but now also on the fact that we are going to have to pay off this an extraordinary amount of public debt, and it will be them and and their futures that are going to suffer from it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's almost like the inverse to what happened in Brexit, where you had the irony that it was the places that were most pro Remain were going to be the least affected by it, and the places that were going to be very badly affected by it um, tended to vote strongly for leave um and and you know that that's not what's happening in this situation um and it, it's it's the older people that want to get back to work that probably um might be most affected on the illness front but certainly not on the economic front now let's escape into the comforts of the future jetpacks food pills a functioning electoral system all that science fiction stuff we've touched on this notion before could coronavirus provide us with an opportunity for the great reset in the way we do things there's no doubt that our daily rituals will have to undergo some permanent changes but what about the bigger things the industries and businesses that might lead us to a better way of living we've asked each of the panelists to choose something big that could feasibly change in the next few years accelerated by the corona shutdown but first mark at the basic level of kind of work and human interaction We've seen a whole host of changes to our daily lives over the past two months we could be living with covid for decades what are those changes that are going to last how is life after this going to be permanently changed uh it depends and it depends on when we get a vaccine uh, or if we get a vaccine and how quick um so if we get a vaccine quite quickly um, there's a real danger we'll end up doing what we did after the 1918 flu pandemic which is rushing to the roaring 20s and uh, and try and party our way out of it. Um, Sounds if, awful. <laughs> well, um, if we don't get a vaccine, and there's a very clear you know risk that we won't, or it takes a long, long time, then we're going to have you know the economic effects, the social distancing effect for a long time, and that will change the way we think. And you're already seeing that you know all of us are experiencing different ways of thinking at the moment, and depending on how long that goes for, I think will de- will determine how much of a change we see and how much of a reset we have. Because um, 
you know, it takes, as you say, I think it takes 30, 30 days to form a habit. So I'm sure many of us have formed new habits in, in, in the lockdown, probably including heavy drinking for some of us. Um, <laughs> and, um, but if we're doing this for a year or two years, that's going to, that's going to fundamentally change the way society works, the way we think about each other, the things we miss, the things we value, and that will decide. So I don't, there is no, I don't, there's no answer to this. I think it's a big, depends whether it's a reset or a pause and it depends on how long we're, we're stuck in it for. One of the things that's been foregrounded is obviously the the, the virus, as far as we know, came from uh, a wet market in China. And the uh, idea that eating habits are going to have to change has become a has become a com- commonplace. I mean, can you foresee a fundamental change in, 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 in consumption of food, not just on in the sense that meat consumption might go down, but we need we may need to look at other ways? We have to totally change the food system anyway. Because, um, I mean, uh, between a third and half of the carbon in the atmosphere has come from the soil because of soil erosion. Uh, we've got less than 60 harvests left on the planet at current levels of soil erosion. What do we do then? Well, you know, people try to sell us fertiliser, which increases soil erosion if you use too much of it, which we're encouraged to do because that supports the profits of fertiliser companies. Um, half the world's population live under water stress because the agriculture we use is far too thirsty. If you looked at beef production in efficiency from, you know, um, sunlight to the beef you get, it's about 3% efficient as an industry. I mean, the whole thing is a complete disaster. Um, so you know, it's not just about how we change wet markets. It's about a fundamental reassessment of the entire agricultural system. Now, the good news is there's quite a lot of people thinking about that, and there's quite a lot of policy um, being proposed and indeed put into place where things like soil health are now getting way up the agenda. But we are down to the wire on this. Andrew, who would have thought it was uh, going to be a guest rather than me that would uh, wax lyrical <laughs> about the need to reduce meat consumption what and think about the environment? Uh, yeah. Mm. Uh, Mark, for your, for your book, we do things differently. You travel the world to meet people who do things differently. But what were the most in- exciting developments that you encountered that perhaps are not getting the, uh, the the coverage or the attention they deserve? Well, I don't do favourites because uh, I think they're false choices. Um, you know, it's a bit like asking me whether I whether I prefer Stevie Wonder or Black Sabbath. You know, I like them for different reasons. But what I would say there was a commonality between uh, a lot of those things that I saw, which which, which comes out, which is usually the change so i was looking for systems change that prevails and there are generally some key characteristics that doesn't happen in every area but you often say 80 of the time came across this thing that what happened was it came from the bottom up it was the people coming together to do something differently that had previously been done for them or to them and they were usually democratized by a new technology or a new financial instrument or a new way of connecting that hadn't been available to them before and they were often not always but they were often catalyzed by uh, a leader or a group of people that were outsiders to the existing system so it turned out that it was civil engineers who were hacking a healthcare system it turned out it was you know residents hacking agri- agriculture in, in Detroit you know all this kind of stuff because when you're outside the system you can see all the lines of power and the ridiculousnesses of a system that the people inside have become a culture to. And if you're in a crisis, suddenly you're like, well, I haven't got time for you to become a, to, to sort this out. I'm just going to go in there and fix it. Um, so my friend Juan Enrique said, if you want to go and see real innovation, go to the places where the world is most broken. So one of the things that's quite useful in this moment with COVID is the world is clearly broken and we can all now see it. And that might actually unleash some proper innovation in things like the way we govern ourselves, the way we do our agriculture, the way we think about how money flows around the world, inequality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. Another of the common places that people fixate upon is carbon emissions have gone down and we all look out yeah. and see a lovely blue sky with no planes in it. Uh, yeah. You know, the UK has been running for a month without uh, uh, coal generated electricity. Yes, apparently. Yeah. Yep, the coal yep. industry says it may, may may never recover. Oh dear, how sad! Never mind. But this has kind of been a bit of a free gift from the shutdown, hasn't it? Are we going to be able to make it stick? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the, the figures are hard to come by because measuring this stuff is really difficult. So, depending on who you talk to, carbon emissions uh, this year will go down between five and eight percent. And what we need to do is we need to cut them year on year by seven and a half percent from here to two thousand and fifty to get us where we need. So um, if we've been given this one for free, the recession that comes afterwards might give us some more for free. So we've got to use that time to reboot the economy in a green way, which is why I'm you know, interested in the noises coming out of Europe about you know tying the recovery of certain companies to, to green plans or whatever. And indeed, my policy idea for this is like what we should do is be, is be changing corporation tax. So the, 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 the more... Um, socially uh, uh, sound and environmentally sound you are as a business, the lower your corporation tax. So that encourages the economy, but it also encourages a green recovery. Can you expand on that then? What kind of things? Tax breaks for? Tax rates for companies that are carbon neutral. 
tax breaks for companies that um, look at the social contract properly and you know have decent uh, employment contracts, uh, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, I mean, I could go on this. I could literally wax lyrical about this for hours and hours. And indeed, perhaps back of my we mind. should do a separate podcast about <laughs> it. Perhaps we should do a daily about it another part, another time. Well, then. maybe. I mean, there's there's a little plus of foot to possibly think about a political movement which is neither left nor right, but is just all about incentives that work for both. And for instance, that that tax break that generally in, in when we've been testing it with people, the right seem to like it. They kind of go, well, yes, we're all for um, low tax and encouraging entrepreneurship. And we kind of agree that we do need to go in, go in a greener direction. So that's good because the idea is you attract to, the, to London and, and the UK the, 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 the organisations that are going to be building the next economy. And it tends to appeal to the left because the left generally are sort of more, more worried about you know, social justice and, uh, and ecology. And if you're saying, well, we're going to incentivise corporations to be more like that, and we're also going to punish your fossil fuel companies and, and, and your chemical companies that don't take um, stuff seriously, they generally seem to like it as well. So what we're trying to do is find these policy ideas that go across um, these horrible partisan boundaries. Before we move on to ask uh, Alex and Naomi for their, their one big thing that will change absolutely everything, I wanted to ask you, is it wrong to imagine that there's going to be some kind of magic technological breakthrough that's going to appear and make it all right, that's going to yeah, enable us? Yes. Yes, it's absolutely wrong. I mean, one of the reasons I don't like being called a futurist because futurism is usually populated by uh, old white men who are techno-fetishists who tend to predict um, technologies or financial instruments that they find emotionally or financially convenient. Um, the problems we have and always had are not technological. They're about governance. They're about ethics. They're about culture. Now, I'm a big fan of the power of technology. I, uh, it gives us all sorts of options. But the fundamental questions we're being asked by the future are not technological ones. They're about who we are, what we feel, what's right and wrong, what's equality, what's fairness. And those questions are not going to be answered by technology. They can be brought along by technology. For instance, if you make energy cheaper, that has wonderful democratizing effects. But if you don't change the way the money works, if you don't change the way the press works, if you don't change the way we think about education and what's and what we teach people, then you know that, that you know that it doesn't it doesn't really matter. In fact, we often find that supposedly democratizing technologies like the internet, for instance, often exacerbate inequality because underneath all that is a set of uh, governments, uh, sensibilities, corporations with an ethical or moral framework that is asking itself the wrong questions and is self-serving. So what we have is that the keeping the status quo is in fact the state of the art just with more technology. Hmm. Well, when I think of futurists, I always just think of Steve Strange and Visage and Fade to Grey, but I would say that because I mentioned, let's do the thought experiment then. You get to choose one big thing that's going to change the future. Alex, what's the big thing that we should concentrate upon? I would focus on GDP calculations. I think we need to find different measures. Um, you know, thinking back to that famous Bobby Kennedy address at the University of Kansas, um, we have built-in perverse incentives into the system. You know, he talked about how we count uh, the locks we put on our door and, and the jails that we send the people who break them, but we we have a measuring system that doesn't allow for our health, for the quality of our children's education, for it doesn't take into account uh, the courage of a nation, the wisdom of the nation, the compassion. And, and I think I'm paraphrasing, but he ended by saying, in short, GDP measures everything except that which makes life worthwhile or some, some such thing. Um, I mean, it was Cameron's only good idea, um, which is probably why, like a dick, he abandoned it. Um, but but we really need to start thinking about what it is we want to measure as an indicator that we're doing better. And I think whether we're spending 1% more money than we were last year is really not a good indicator of that. Wasn't Cameron's big mistake calling it the happiness index, which made it sound really kind yeah, of I know, trivial? I know. Flippant, but in fact, it's actually. Because he's a dick. Yeah, because he's a dick. Yeah. Well, he's in his caravan now. Nobody cares about him. Naomi, <laughs> what's your choice of the thing that's going to change the future? Um, it's the debate around homelessness, and it, it should change because uh, there can now be absolutely no ambiguity about it whatsoever we clearly do have a choice um, as lockdown came in the government effectively cured homelessness almost overnight our streets uh, were, were cleared of rough sleepers and they were given accommodation and that just highlights more clearly than ever before that ending homelessness is nothing 
but a straight political choice. Uh, and one thing the government now has to decide, having effectively cured it, uh, is whether or not it's going to reinvent homelessness again. Um, yeah. And I, I, you know, and 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 that for me is is, is a really obvious uh, and potentially one good thing that could come out of of COVID. Do you think we're going to get the resurgence of the kind of self-reliance debate that you'd expect from the usual suspects uh, when it comes to when when things calm down somewhat and uh, a bright housing minister decides it's time to turn the homeless people back out onto the streets? Are we likely to see these kind of op-eds saying, "Well, it's all about self-reliance"? Or has that been burned away by the events of the past? Yeah, few weeks? I mean, I, I think I think it would be, from an optics perspective, much, much, much more difficult for any of those viewpoints to resurrect themselves. Um, what you probably will see is a resurrection of the debate between local government and and central government about how uh, funding and lending restrictions can be lifted in order to help local authorities provide better uh, housing and more suitable accommodation arrangements for the homeless. Mark, you just talked about you about uh, re-envisaging corporation tax as a, as a major way to change the future. Uh, yeah, I mean, but I think there's a problem in the question, actually. And, and I think this th- this is what really needs to change, is we're always looking for that one thing that needs to change. And actually, what the thing that really needs to change is we need to become systems thinkers. We need to understand. We need to have in our education systems and in our political systems the idea that everything is interrelated. And what we need, therefore, is a, chance, a change in sensibility to see the connectedness between us all. And maybe with COVID, that, that might actually happen because then we might realise that the change to the future won't be in one big thing. Yes, we want change to the way we treat with homelessness or yes, we want uh, a, a, a different corporation tax strategy or yes, we want solar energy. But the one big thing that needs to change is a collective view about our fate. I like to say the human race is a co-inspirational network. We go up together or we go down together. And the other thing we need to stop doing is demonising the other side. So whilst I think a lot of Alex's points were brilliant, going around calling David Cameron a dick doesn't necessarily help, I don't think, because I've met David Cameron and I disagree with him fundamentally on many things. But he's not a dick. He's just different. And, he, and and what we don't want is people on the right going, oh, yeah, Naomi and Alex and all that. What a bunch of dicks. What a bunch of... And that's what we've got at the moment. We've got to change our language and realise that we are, in, we are in this together and you're never going to create love in somebody else by calling them an arsehole. You've got to love them first and then we can work together. Would you rather be an arsehole or a dick? <laughs> <laughs> the nearest thing I've got to a big idea is I have a suspicion that the price of quality education could well collapse um and that uh corona will 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 be the reason that that it happens we marketized education but now corona has destroyed scarcity because everything's delivered online and i'm surrounded by nieces and nephews wondering what they're paying nine thousand pounds mm. a year for if they're getting everything on screen and you know the exclusivity well you know what are you paying for if absolutely everybody could have access to this for, for you know via an internet um connection i also have friends who work in academia who have very little sympathy for colleges who just say that they're in financial trouble when they've spent many years turning themselves into diversified hospitality businesses when their key concerns are well, what's going to happen to our car park revenue and what about our accommodation revenue so i suspect that we may see a big change in 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 the pricing of education because it will go back to the education itself rather than the surrounding network of uh, ancillary services and i'm saying that based on absolutely nothing because i'm you know i don't work in education but it's just a it's just a suspicion could happen who knows i saw this great tweet i don't know if you've seen it which is um, if 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 capitalism is so great how come socialism has to come and save it every 10 years and uh, what's what's happened is is the point you make there is we and it goes back to the point Alex was making about perverse measures. We've marketized everything and think the market makes this great way of doing stuff. And uh, I can't remember who it was who said it, but you know, markets make great servants, but they make terrible masters. And um, perhaps what will happen now, whether it's in education, whether it's in energy, whether it's how we treat the homeless, where it's all the points we've raised, we might start to see the market as a servant and not the dictator of what's good and what's bad. How is government coping with the pressures of these extraordinary times? What innovations are needed to face the challenges of the strange new world we're in? And what can the past teach us about how to run a country in times of crises such as these? We need to work out a better way of holding accountable organisations actually accountable. At the Institute for Government, we're dedicated to better government. And throughout the lockdown, we're turning our famous debates, panels and discussions into a new listening experience 
IFG Live so that everyone can hear the best ideas and most original thinking for improving the way our government works. We have to be able to do big things fast before a problem is staring us in the face. That's IFG Live from the Institute for Government, now available at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, for those of us who love a good holiday, this has been a particularly difficult time. It's not just spoiled Remainers who love a good jaunt abroad. UK residents made 72.6 million trips overseas during 2019. They won't be doing that this year, with two-thirds of aircraft around the world parked up and swinging cuts being made right across the industry. Do we need to leave our old notions of what constitutes tourism and travel in the past? Alex, you're currently in Mykonos, which is tourism dependent. What's it like at the moment and what's it going to be like for the rest of the year? Um, I mean, it's tough. Everything is still closed, but we're beginning to reopen little by little, really for uh, uh, internal tourism, if that makes sense. So for, for Greek people to travel around and, and, and stimulate things a little bit. And then they have a sort of step plan for opening, uh, you know, the borders with specific travel corridors to countries that they consider safer in that, you know, they have fewer cases and they e. have... E.g. not the uh, Well, <laughs> well I, you know, there was the... I, I'm afraid the UK and the US are pretty near the bottom of the list because, um, you know, the biggest tourist attraction in the next couple of years will be to be seen as safe. Uh, so safety has become more important than golden sands and blue seas. And if like Greece or New Zealand or Croatia, you can show you have both, then it becomes a seller's market. So, you know, there are certainly, there, there are certainly going to be loads of people who want to come to you. So it becomes a case of who do you let in to make some uh, uh, money from the tourism to sustain people's livelihoods while remaining safe. So if you if you tip too far one way and suddenly you have outbreaks, that's it. You've killed your season. Yeah. So and that, you, that 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 reinforces what um, Andrew was saying about education, because of course. Uh, it, higher education in particular is one of our key exports and the key consideration for a lot of wealthy Chinese and uh, students from, from uh, you know, beyond the European Union is often how safe is it for me to study mm. in the UK rather than the cost of it. Um, and, and I can't imagine wanting to leave Singapore uh, as a student to, to come to uh, yeah. London right now. Mm. And, and and one more very quick point, because it, it always irks me, because it's quite Anglo-centric. Um, you know, no one is looking at what tourism is actually worth to the UK. It's a fucking huge industry for the yep. UK. You know, the UK gets something like 47 million visitors a year. I was looking at the stats yesterday. I'm not going to misquote, but it's a huge chunk of the economy. And right now, no one will really want to visit. So that's the other part of the equation that I think Britain has to solve in the next few months. Although Sterling, Sterling is making it ever more attractive for people. <laughs> yeah, again. And also, um, actually, when it comes to tourism, the UK has an £18 billion uh, deficit. So we as tourists in the UK spend £18 billion more abroad on holiday than people come to the UK spend here. So if those Brits decide to stay in the UK, that might be the thing. And actually, if you look at... Um, uh, n number one or number two holiday destination every year, it's usually the UK because we've got this wonderful uh, combination of incredible scenery. Uh, uh, we've got great cosmopolitan cities. We've got heritage and castles. We've got something pretty much for everybody, probably except the sunshine. So, um, An absolutely rampant coronavirus. An absolutely <laughs> rampant coronavirus. But, but what I'm saying is if those, if those UK tourists aren't going somewhere else, then the UK industry will probably have to retool itself for attracting people that actually live here. But the one thing I want to say say about travel and tourism more generally generally is that we we've fundamentally got to readdress the fact that we think travel is a right and we because again what do we do we marketized it we said oh we were trying to get it as cheap as possible so people can go everywhere and spend more money in hotels or whatever wherever travel should be a privilege 
And, and we've got to get back to realizing that travel is something that we are privileged to do and we should treat it with a little bit more respect and use it to broaden our minds rather than thinking, oh, well, let's just get somewhere and get drunk in the sun. But Mark, that sounds like a dangerously elitist point of view there. That's the kind of argument which if ever advanced on a, on a broader platform perhaps than this, this podcast would get you into terrible trouble because you're trying to limit the opportunities of people. You're trying to take away EasyJet and Ryanair and an opportunity to go to a European city for a weekend break. And absolutely not. No, no, I'm absolutely not because I think there's nothing wrong and we all do it. Go on that one holiday a year where you might just want to sit in the sun because you've had, you know, your time with the kids and you just want to relax and someone bring you a cocktail. I'm absolutely fine with that. Okay. But if you look at, for instance, the impact on the environment, particularly flying, it's not your average UK citizen or family taking that one week holiday. All of the damage is done by the people who travel very frequently in business class, uh, are long haul flights doing expensive stuff. So what I would suggest is a frequent flyer levy. So that your average family goes on one foreign holiday a year doesn't get charged uh, any tax but if you're flying you know four or five times a month or you're taking three uh, three expensive long-haul flights to your properties around the world then you do pay more because that would incentivize us all to think a bit more locally and as we all know one of the big solutions to all our problems is keeping money funded running around in our local economies rather than yeah. being exported to distant shelves. Although, although obviously the real thing that everyone could do would be to stop eating meat because that has a far greater impact on the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions than all of global transport combined she's yeah. off again she's off again on the meet again well we can we can also talk about sustainable meat production which can be done in fact if you do meat production properly it takes carbon out of the atmosphere and i wrote about it extensively in my first book flying itself people say oh it's only three percent or whatever but actually it is the most carbon intensive thing you can personally do other um, than eating so, meat yeah not no even more so than eating meat because if you if you take a f- one flight, the amount of carbon you personally are responsible for is insane. Naomi, do you think that um, travel guilt and flight guilt will become a thing that people will start start to look at travel and um, not just business travel as we just had described, but you know flying in general as something that's kind of a dirty secret. I mean, I think it had begun a bit already, and um, you know, thanks to people like Greta Thunberg um, raising the, the the issue so poignantly over the last couple of years, I think people have uh, certainly, you know, in my uh, friendship groups, have begun to, you know, sort of almost be a bit apologist for flying or trying to do some sort of offsetting uh, every time they do it. Um, but you know, at the moment, I'm sorry, but it's just the price we have to pay during an epidemic that we we don't go on holiday, and that's you know, hardly a a price to pay at all when, you know, people are even more economically insecure than before. It's nothing but bougie indulgence to be thinking about our holidays and the people who really deserve a break, of course, are the key workers who should, I think, once it's safe, be given an all expenses paid trip to the Caribbean, if you ask me. Um, And, you know, I say that as someone who's greatly missing my beach holidays. You know, I famously love them, but it's at the moment, it just sounds like even getting there would be so stressful, Um, uh, you know, queuing for, uh, you know, check-in and security and then sitting on a plane where, you know, you can't be socially distanced and all of the concerns around air circulation and things like that. I just don't think you could actually enjoy your holiday until such time as either we have reliable antibody tests and we know that the antibody provides you with uh, immunity for a certain length of time or uh, you know we have we have a, a vaccine and there hasn't yet been one for any coronavirus so it's not something I'm putting too much store in at the moment. So we've come to the end of the podcast which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from the world of politics and current events. The weather's improving, summer's approaching, we're all staying indoors so what is taking your mind off? things and outside of your lockdown home alex there's no bars open in mykonos as yet so what's keeping you entertained um i'm greatly enjoying wikipedia black holes um because usually i can't (laughs) i can't indulge them indefinitely but having loads of time it's so wonderful you click on one thing and you think oh what's that and you go on something else and you think oh what's that and you you click on a reference and you go to some scientific journal and then you click 10 hours later I just love it. I absolutely love having the time to do that. It literally, I lifted my head yesterday and realized it was dark and none of the lights were on. <laughs> and I was just obsessively clicking on stuff um, about gauges. Do you ever treat yourself to hitting random article, Alex? 
No, I've oh, never it's brilliant. done that. Oh, it's great. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. I might try oh, that tonight. Mark, what's your uh, mind-cleaning escape route from the oppressive world of politics and current affairs at the moment? Uh, well, and on top of that, I've got two s- small children, both under the age of four, without uh, any childcare as well. So, trying to sort of do my job in, in half the time because my, you know, my wife needs her time as well. So, it's it's pretty intense. So, the thing I do um, is I'm working out like crazy. So, I work oh, out probably seven or eight times a week. I'm doing thousands of press ups every week. And what I find is a it helps me sleep, which is really important because my little one gets up at five a.m. every morning. And uh, and b I think you know if you want to um, help the planet at the moment then boosting your own immune system is probably a good thing to do it's good for you it's good for everybody else and, and exercise is absolutely the best thing i've found for for you know if you're lifting something very very heavy it's very hard to have a nuanced view on you know keir starmer that was hench futurist mark davidson talking there um <laughs> no me how about you well, yeah, I, mean, I confess I'm not really one for kissing my biceps and doing a thousand press-ups, but um, I'm much more into the lazy girls version of relaxing, which is um, I am obsessed with the Icelandic entry into this year's Eurovision Song Contest, which of course was meant to be <laughs> last weekend. And that guy was robbed, I'm telling you. Um, and he would definitely have won, for sure, for sure, for sure. Um, he's called Dow Freya. Um, I think that's how you pronounce it. I may be very wrong there. So subscribe to his YouTube channel. He's doing some absolutely epic sets from home and his voice is just like honey uh, and it's it's really lovely well i'm hiding from the real world with uh, white lines on netflix uh and crime murder in ibiza house music clubs um ridiculously melodramatic ridiculously over the top it's like a telenovela uh meets um shameless or something like that it is pure sugar and what's, nonsense. It called? what's it called it's called white lines it's got danny mays in it danny mays the great actor danny mays doing uh, doing i've got to say a pretty good manchester accent um and it's a it's a crime drama based in the world of uh clubs and casinos in Ibiza, and it is ridiculous and highly entertaining. So that one I recommend. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you to our panel, Mark Stevenson, Naomi Smith, and Alex Andreo. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Subscribe to The Bunker on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Bunker underscore pod. Don't forget you can back us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next week. Bye. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Naomi Smith, Alex Andreu and Mark Stevenson. The assistant producer was Jacob Hutchbold and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Bunker.